Good morning. It's good to see everyone on this 4th of July. Uh, we're continuing in our series in 1 Peter, and we're talking about a cruciform life, uh, what it means to essentially uh, live a life that reflects the cross of Jesus Christ in our actions and our behaviors, the things we do, and the way we, uh, the way we behave in our daily lives. Um, <clears throat> Last week, we were talking about submitting to every human institution, Peter's admonition for believers and the importance of that for Christian exiles in a world where each one of us is under some authority. And so he continues that theme uh, this morning in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. This is the word of God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if, when you do good, and suffer for it, you endure. Well, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, thank you for your grace this morning on this beautiful Lord's Day. And we pray for the illumination of your spirit to quicken our hearts that we might be made dead to sin and alive to Christ. Convict us and convince us of your truth and let us leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, whenever I preach on a text like this, I feel an explicit mandate to carefully deal with the passage, not just by glossing over the fact that it's talking about servants and masters. We don't talk like that today in the 21st century, at least not in the Western world. We don't see ourselves as having masters, and we probably don't see ourselves as being servants. It's really just another word for slave. And so whenever I encounter a passage like this, I feel like I've got to sort of, you know, do a little background on the context here and the text so that we're able to understand how to deal with a passage like this. We need apologetic sensitivity in the world we live in to explain what the Bible means by servants and masters or slaves and masters. Parsing out the difference, of course, between slavery in the ancient world and modern-day slavery is a very, very important interpretive task. And I, I'm not trying to make this morning like a classroom or sort of, you know, 
drop on you some academic, you know, sort of weight. I'm just trying to help us to understand what it is being said here in this book that we call the Word of God. That's important for us that we're able to carefully handle the Word with apologetic sensitivity to people who have questions and to a lot of people who read a passage like this and say, see, the Bible is a tool of oppression. And it's important for us to be able to explain and understand what's going on here. So just a little background about Peter's words here in this passage. Slavery in the ancient world existed along a spectrum. Now in our modern minds, when we think of slavery, we think of the Atlantic slave trade, and there's not much of a spectrum there. It was brutal, it was horrific. But in the ancient world, slavery existed along a spectrum from the kind of absolute brutality to a sort of almost indentured servitude. And so there was a wide variety of what servanthood or masters and all of those things could be. And it could refer to a person who was captured in war and made an absolute slave with chains around their necks and forced into a gladiator you know, zone like a coliseum and forced to fight to their death. And slavery absolutely in the ancient world could be brutal. I don't want to pretty it up in any ways. But at the same time, it could also apply to people who were um, managers of large estates and had a lot of power. In fact, if you were the slave of a powerful politician, you often lived much better than a free man who was a plebe or a common person. Uh, one of the things we can think about is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a free man. He was a Roman citizen, but he was an aristocrat. And what that means is he essentially was a hired hand. He was a tent maker along with Aquila and Priscilla. Some of you know the background of the story. And he hired himself out to do work. He didn't have an employer or a master. But what that meant is if no one wanted his services, he starved. And Paul, in his writings, often talked about many times being hungry. And so just because you were free did not mean you had means, you were affluent. And so a lot of people became willing servants or slaves to secure three hots in a cot, if you know what I mean. But the Greek word used here in this passage is not the common word for slave, which is doulos, but oiketai. And it has reference to someone who manages a household or an estate. And in the ancient world, a slave could be a teacher, a tutor, a manager of a large property. And so the Bible, to sort of express this ambiguity or spectrum, often translates the biblical word for slave as servant, and rightly so, because for us today, living in the 21st century, we don't have much wiggle room. We don't have much nuance when we think of the idea of servanthood or slave. We think of one thing, because that is the closest thing in our cultural memory, and we should be sensitive to that. But the horrible degradation of slaves in the 19th century in America gives the word slave in the Bible a far worse connotation than is accurate for most of the society to which Peter was writing. Does that make sense? In other words, what Peter is thinking about is not what we think about. He's thinking about the context of the ancient Near East in the first century. And um, 
contrary to the sort of one-dimensional aspect we have today, slaves in the ancient world, as I said a minute ago, could be, have all sorts of professions. And I believe because of that, because of what I've just articulated, that that points us in the direction. It gives us a hint about how we should apply this passage of Scripture. And I believe for us living in the Western world today, the most appropriate application of a passage like this is to employees in the workplace. Or anyone who answers to a superior, because this is what Peter is thinking about. And it's incredibly relevant for us today, even though most of you don't think you have masters, if Peter were alive in the 21st century, he would be saying, I, I simply mean your boss. Peter is thinking about answering to others, and almost no one answers to no one. We all answer to someone. You can move up the corporate ladder, but there are executives and vice presidents and boards that one has to answer to. You know, the manager of the Cardinals answers to the GM, and the GM answers to the owner. Very few people in this world, regardless of their level of success, answer to no one. And this is what Peter is concerned about, how believers under authority behave and conduct themselves. Because God has placed everyone under some authority. And the way we behave under these authority structures speaks to our identity as exiles in a world that is not our home. And look at what he says in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The word there for masters is the Greek word despotes, where we get the word despot from. And it may in your mind have a negative connotation, but the word simply means one who has legal control and authority over people, such as subjects or servants or employees. Right? There is a accountability or a legal authority a person has over the people underneath them. And you see that in workplaces all over the place today. Here's another way to translate this, which I think actually conveys the passage a little bit better. And, and I believe good, at least 50% of good preaching is giving you a good translation of the Bible. And we use the ESV, and it's a really great, very close to the original language, but sometimes it is not as dynamic as I'd like it to be. So this is the Jordan Deyub translation. I believe it's faithful, though, to the original language. Employees, respectfully submit to your employers, not only when they treat you well, but also when they mistreat you, for God honors and sees the perseverance of your unfair treatment. Have you ever, ever been mistreated by someone above you, right? You ever felt like your boss was a jerk? Right? Everyone has, right? And uh, we all respond to it in different ways. Um, but chief among the Christian virtues, and this is what Peter wants us to understand, is endurance. That part of the way we shine to the world as followers of Jesus is 
our endurance, the ability to sort of bear up faithfully under unjust situations, the ability to suffer long and not give up or give in, to see God's hand even in your suffering, even though it be at the hands of others. Lord Wellington, after the British defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo, said, our men were not braver than the enemy. They were brave five minutes longer. And so when we submit to those above us, even when they mistreat us, we emulate Jesus. Think about it for a moment. Jesus took on the most submissive role, that of a servant who dies in his master's service. Even though Jesus is equal to the Father, his willing acceptance of his submissive role was wholly voluntary and offered as a gift. So we're acting like Jesus. We're emulating the model that Jesus himself gave us. He modeled a life for us. We often lose the fact that we can't be perfect, but Jesus was perfect for us, and that's appropriate to us by faith. But we lose sight of the fact sometimes that that, that that doesn't mean that there isn't a life to live. There is a life to live, and Jesus modeled it for us. His exemplary life gave us a pattern. This is how we sort of bear out and live out our Christian faith is we look to Jesus. In our series on holiness, the name of our series was called Becoming Like Jesus because that's what holiness is. It's God through his Holy Spirit cultivating in us Christ-like character. We're, we're growing more and more into the image of Christ and Jesus Christ is formed more and more in us as we draw closer to him. Now another reason to submit to employers or people who have authority over you even when they mistreat you is often you're wrong (laughs) you may think you're being mistreated and sometimes you're not you just have a problem with authority yeah and you know depending on your upbringing it's hard for people to tell you what to do I remember growing up I grew up in in an area, in a neighborhood where none of my friends had both parents at home. I I had both parents at home. My mom's here this morning. Uh, but, But a lot of my friends, as we got older, one of the things I recognized, because they didn't grow up with fathers, they had problems with authority, is it was hard for them to submit to the authority of other men or people in general, because they didn't grow up with it. They didn't grow up with that sort of firm authority figure. As a quick side note, this sort of gives us a portrait into a lot of things that happen, you know, in our country among people, you know, and even people who struggle, people who we think have, you know, struggle with being told what to do, but there's background. Everyone's got a background. And so depending on your background and your upbringing, you may be, you may interpret any kind of authority as harsh, and ill-treatment when it may not be. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. There's a really good book called Thanks for the Feedback. So you sort of managers and supervisors or wherever you, wherever you are, if this is maybe business owners, it's a really good book and it identifies three types of feedback. Appreciation, coaching, and evaluation. 
Here's the amazing thing about this book is it's not addressed to people who give feedback. You know who it's addressed to? People receiving feedback. Because you can give perfect feedback to somebody, but if they're not able to hear it, they, they, they misinterpret it. They hear it as criticism. They hear it as, you know, a critique or judgment. And, you know, so no matter how well feedback is given, it's really the people on the receiving end who need to learn how to process and understand what they're hearing. Some people receive any feedback as rejection and criticism. But this is a good word to those people as well. Because employees need to learn how to show those above them grace. And maybe this is not the way you think about God's grace. We know that grace is something that is undeserved that we receive from God. But this passage is essentially saying that when we endure and don't respond in kind to people who mistreat us, especially those who have authority above us, that in God's sight, it's a gracious thing. Look at what it says in verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It says it twice. That God sees your endurance of suffering at the hands of others as giving grace back out to other people. It's a gracious thing in God's sight. You're showing grace to other people. You ever someone known someone, when you think about them, you say, what a gracious person they are, right? They're easy to be around. You don't feel like you're, there's a tripwire. Every time you say something, right, you're going you're gonna to step on some landmine, right? They're magnanimous. They're generous of spirit. They're gracious people. And when you make mistakes, they're forgiving, and they're not easily offended, And this is the kind of heart that Christian exiles in a world which is not our own ought to have because this is the heart that Jesus had. Think of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This kind of grace, even in the midst of Jesus' own suffering death, he was gracious to those who were crucifying him. So when we are gracious towards others who mistreat us, we're following Christ's own example that he modeled for us, that he laid out for us. And look at what it says in verse 21. For this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, a model, a pattern to follow, so that you might follow in his steps. An outline, so to speak. Jesus left us. And maybe you can think about it this way. Ask yourself, I mean, if Christ was not exempt from suffering, why would we? Right? If if Christ himself had to endure the suffering in this life, why, why would we somehow be exempt from it? Or just be able to pray it away? Now, God gives us grace in our suffering But if we have fellowship with Christ and communion with Christ or being shaped into the image of Jesus, we ought to expect that there are times where we will be mistreated. In fact, it's something you kind of have to get used to in this fallen and broken world. And I think that this puts justice for the oppressed in proper perspective. 
Because pursuing justice in the Bible is almost always others-focused. Or else it becomes sort of self-serving. I mean, think about the day and age we live in right now. Everyone now is sort of a tripwire of offense and outrage. The slightest infraction sets people off. And what we're doing negatively is we're teaching our children to see the worst in other people's words and intentions all the time. We don't give anyone the benefit of the doubt anymore. And I don't think this is what the Bible teaches. I think it teaches us to suffer and endure, to seek justice for others, but to be, and do it quickly, but, to be, but be slow to seek it for yourself. There are times when you ought to self-advocate. There are times when you ought to seek justice for yourself, but that ought not be the very first move when someone mistreats you, right? Sort of like a, you know, a sh like a quick draw McGraw. You know, the minute someone says something, boom, it sets you off. And that is not the way Christian exiles ought to behave. We have to recognize that we need God's grace we need God's grace and that God is sanctifying us and making us more like him through the daily offenses and hardships that we endure. The testing of your faith grows and expands your trust in God. So if you would be free from all suffering the minute it happens, you, you won't grow in God. Your trust won't expand. Your faith won't grow. It's through those hardships and even through the mistreatment of other people that your faith grows. Verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, which means that Jesus himself in the flesh as a man had to learn to trust the Father through his own suffering. To not avenge himself, but to believe that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and that God in his time and in his wisdom knows who deserves vengeance because you don't and I don't. The very people we would like to take vengeance on, God may be dealing with and drawing to himself. I mean, I'm glad I'm not God because I'd take vengeance out, I would have. I've kind of mellowed out. I feel like for a long time I probably would have taken, you know, divine vengeance out on a lot of people who probably didn't deserve it because of where I was in my life, where I was in my spiritual maturity, where I was in my head. And so we entrust ourselves to God who judges and vindicates us in his wisdom and in his time. And this seems to be something that the apostles gleaned from being with Jesus almost above all else. And it was such an important mark of following Jesus that they couldn't stop talking about it. Probably because it was so counterintuitive in the ancient world. Even the Jews, from which most of the early disciples rose up from, had a saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So this idea that you would love your enemy, you would be long-suffering towards your enemy, was completely counterintuitive in the first century. And look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. 
When slandered, we entreat, which means we speak gently to others. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's a tough saying, isn't it? That when people badmouth us, we don't badmouth them back, even though we may be thinking it. You know? Sometimes you may need, you know, when you get home, to vent. And that's not wrong, right? Sometimes you need that, but to someone's face, we don't, we don't, we don't give them what we think they deserve, or we don't give them back what they give us. And sometimes working through those things. That's why sort of this, the spying thing that's happening in our culture right now, where people are sort of filming other people in private, say and do things, I don't, I don't know that I think that's right. It feels like some kind of like police state. It's almost like spying on people's thoughts because, you know, the things you say in private are not the things you'd say in public. The things you'd say to yourself or to your spouse or the people you trust, because sometimes you're, you're processing verbally through things. And if someone the next day said, hey, you said X, did you really mean that? You'd say, I don't know, I didn't really mean that. I was just really ticked off. And so we've, we're kind of coming to a place in our culture where it kind of, kind of feels like, you know, I don't know, it feels like a Stalin's Russia or something where our neighbors are spying on each other and turning the information into the state for social credits or something like that. It's, it's wild. And I think the way that we're designed as human beings is we can't hold it all in but we learn that we don't give people back publicly what we want to give them back when they mistreat us. We may process it, we may need to go to God in prayer, maybe we need to vent in private. But we don't revile people back in return, we don't threaten them, right? We endure when we're persecuted and we bless them. And you know, here's the, here's the amazing thing, is Jesus said, love your enemies, not like your enemies. Because that'd be impossible. That'd be impossible to like your enemies. He said, love your enemies, which means you may be harboring, you know, pain or resentment towards somebody, but you can still love them. Did you know that? Did you know that you can love somebody you don't like? You can love someone you resent? Yes, you can. You, because love is about action. Love is an action word. It's not about feeling or emotion necessarily. This is why you persevere with your spouse even when you know, things grow cold sometimes in a marriage. Because that's what love is. Love is about doing, love is about action. It's about continuing to serve somebody even though the sort of ebbs and flows of emotion are up and down. I'm sort of carrying on on a tangent here but it's for somebody, somebody needs to hear this. I remember years ago telling a friend in California who came to me for some marriage counseling. He had been married, I think, about 11 years at the time, and he said, Jordan, uh, I think my wife and I are gonna get a divorce. And I said, why? He said, our romance is dead. And I responded, so what? <clears throat> and I said, <clears throat> my, my romance with my wife has been kindled and frozen a thousand times. Like, <laughs> that's what marriage is. It's, you know the whole thing doesn't fall apart because things grow cold for a moment, right? And marriage ultimately is not about romance, even though it's great to have, you know, romance. It's great, you know, for there to be the warmth and fires of romance. But marriage is about a commitment of action, of love. It's not even always about what you feel, even though we hope to feel those good things, but we're dealing with other sinners. The person sleeping next to you is a sinner. 
And so you're loving that person. You're showing God's grace to that person. It's an action. You may not always feel it. And this is true for our neighbors. This is true for our coworkers. And it's especially true for supervisors, people who are in charge of you. Now, what do we say about times when we shouldn't yield and submit to abuse? Are there moments for that? Are there justified reasons to rebel against an oppressive employer or supervisor or even master? The answer is yes. I think those times are exceptional. They're rare. And I'm not going to sort of go into a laundry list of here's Here's all the causes, the just causes for you to rebel. But today's the 4th of July, and this nation wouldn't exist unless we rebelled against the British, the authority of the, you know, the British crown. And I think most of us look back and say, well, that was justified. Maybe the British don't feel that way. I don't know. I would imagine you know, loyalists to the British crown in the 1700s who were Christians thought, you're rebelling against Peter's words or something. So you can see how dicey it can get really quick. But there's a context to this passage here. And the context is really important for us because we're not just talking about general ideas of rebellion or submission to people in power and authority. The context is the Romans were already suspicious of the Christians for refusing to worship the emperor, okay? That's the context of this passage, is Peter is thinking, let's not give the Romans any more reason to be suspicious of us, because we already don't worship their gods. So if Christians commonly rebelled, it would exacerbate the suspicion that all Christians were sort of traitors to the empire. And this is what Peter is really concerned about. This is what Peter wants to communicate. We talked about this last week. We're not revolutionaries. We're subversive in our culture. But we're not revolutionaries, right? We're not trying to overthrow the government. We're not, you know, we're not trying to storm the police station, right? We're subversives, though. And what we're trying to do is model and proclaim an alternative kingdom to the kingdoms of this world. And we do that as we enter into the structures that exist, our workplaces, our homes, our schools, our communities, and even our local government. We're not revolutionaries, but we are subversive. And that's what Peter is concerned about. And when we rush to defend ourselves, we often get ahead of God. And we don't want to get ahead of God. We want to patiently endure suffering with God's help to solicit and get God's attention, right? It was the Israelites in in Egypt, and it said that after a season, God looked down and saw their cry, that God saw their endurance of suffering, and God himself intervened by sending a mediator, Moses. And that's what Jesus is for us. He's our mediator, that the Father has sent to advocate on our behalf. And so Jesus is advocating for us in ways that we're not even aware, and the Spirit is making intercession for us all the time, 
but we have to accept and receive this by faith because when you're going through a trial and you're suffering under the sort of mistreatment of another, it feels, it can feel like God has abandoned you. But we patiently endure like Christ. Later on in Peter chapter 4, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Wow, what a powerful passage. Your holiness and sanctification, sorry, doesn't happen when you're living high on the hog. It happens when you're enduring fierce trials. When you are suffering, that's when God sanctifies you in a powerful way. Why? Because when you want to get God's attention, you sort of jettison the bad habits. Because you want to do any, everything, and every, anything and everything in your power to recruit God's help. Isn't that right? You're not thinking, what new addiction can I get involved in? Right? You want God to hear your cause. Right? To answer and respond to your plea. And so, this is a powerful passage. Whoever has suffered in the flesh ceases from sin. The final two verses. Talking about Christ. And this is how Peter wraps up this section. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's a beautiful thing to see in Christ the model of every aspect of our lives. Our joy, our lament, our suffering, our vindication, our holiness, our perseverance, our salvation, our redemption. And, and this is sort of the Christocentric, if I could use a theological word, the Christ-centered focus of the entire New Testament and the Bible. That we look to Christ, we look to his example, we look to his suffering, and we're encouraged with the knowledge that just as God vindicated him, he will vindicate us as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace, O oh God. Thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you, O oh God, that ultimately his patient endurance of suffering accomplished for us our salvation. And unless he endured that suffering, we would not be saved, but his willingness to go to the cross and offer his life and body as a sacrificial atoning death for us saves us, forgives us of our sins, and washes us clean by his blood. In this we give you thanks, O God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.